0: fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. Everything passes through this superhuman network of ours. And so I said, I need to figure out how to bring together the most influential people in every field. Because if I want to live an extraordinary life, the most important thing I can do the thing that's most in my control is curating the people around me.
1: At age 28, John Levy realized that he needed to find a way to connect with the most influential people and then figure out how to build trust with them quickly. He hatched one of the most exclusive private communities in the world, and he has leveraged the relationships he has built to create a truly amazing life for himself. If you're ready to learn how to curate your own powerful connections, listen and enjoy. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real life stories and hands on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Mr. John Levy, truly one of the most fascinating guests that uh, we have ever had here on the podcast. John was a Cutco rep for three summers, starting in 2001. He was the number one college All-American in the company during one of those summers, number one college student sales rep. He has become known these days as one of the leading super connectors in America. He is the founder of an event called the Influencers Dinner, which we'll talk about. John is a behavioral scientist who has studied influence, adventure, and social interaction. He's written a book called The 2AM Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. And you are in for an awesome ride here with this interview today. John Levy, thank you so much for making the time.
0: Are you kidding? For a fellow vector person? Happy to. It's an absolute privilege after all the that I've gained from the organization
1: outstanding. Well, tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Cutco, like what was your background uh, early in your life leading up to when you started out with Cutco Vector.
0: Uh so I grew up in New York City, uh Manhattan and uh I have and still do have two really weird parents. My dad's a painter and sculptor. He's got like this crazy afro-ish hair where Kind of mixed. So we're, uh, he's half Yemenite and half Turkish, and my mom's Dutch. So we're all different shades of color in the family. And my mom's a composer and conductor. So we definitely just didn't have the normal upbringing. It's not like my dad worked at an office and my mom was, you know, like a compliance officer. So like none of these standard jobs. It was, putting together frames and stretching canvases and special evenings and having to entertain clients and all like the kind of weird things that you'd expect artists to do. That was my upbringing. And right before go, I-, I went to school here in New York City. I went to NYU and I took a year off to go to Israel and like work on a kibbutz and do all these like ridiculous year off adventure things. And I came back and I was like, I need to make some money if I'm going to be in New York over the summer. It's one of the most expensive cities in the world. And, uh, I saw this ad that said 1825 base app. And I immediately start multiplying like, okay, so 40 hours a week, $18. Oh my God. I'm going to be making serious loot this summer. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, what I didn't realize was that I was going to make like multiple times that <laughs> serious <laughs> money that summer. <laughs> And yes, I went in for the interview, got the position, and uh, within a short time, I realized, hey, I I might be pretty good at this. And so before I, while I was in training, there was a guy who was just starting out by the name of Asher Abraham, who was riding, didn't have a car, he was doing, he was working out in five towns, Long Island, and he was riding a bicycle in the summer heat between appointments. And had made like 10 grand already that summer. It was just some absurd numbers. It didn't make any sense. And uh, he kind of set this example of what's possible. And I ended up really just making some of my best friends that summer and, and doing really well. Yeah,
1: it's so cool how Vector or brings together people who might not have otherwise met, but who are like-minded, ambitious, inspired, positive. And uh, we make lifelong friends from some of those early summer yeah, experiences.
0: Literally, my best friend in the world, uh, Liam Alexander, uh, was in the uh, training right after mine. I took him under my wing. I was asked to like what's it called? Field train him and, and everything. And we kind of became the, the core of the office over the next year. It was really uh, under Joe Ginelli. Yeah. It was really, just a great. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's a tough job that you learn. You get your licks, and you learn a lot of lessons. But it gives you grit.
1: Yeah, for sure. What were some of the lessons that uh, you feel like came out of your experience?
0: Uh, so, what really made uh, the Cutco Vector experience unique is that the idea that within a week of you starting a job, they will give you the responsibility to give a talk at a meeting. And that's really unheard of. You don't hear somebody at like J.P. Morgan Chase or Accenture. Oh, it's their first week. Great. Let's let them present an idea to the entire team. It's usually, mm-hmm. oh, we need to slowly skill them up, develop them. I think uh, what's interesting about Vector is that since it is really what you make of it, that the opportunities are there to skill up. Uh, in a really fast way and people are rooting for you, right? There's, there's nobody hoping that you fail because there isn't a limit on the number of positions. So it's non-competitive in that way. And it's not that if you win, I, I lose at something. It's not like we're both fighting for the same customers. So it's a really supportive environment to develop a lot of the soft skills that frankly, right now, uh, if you look at the latest reports are, are really weak in this generation of people coming out of college.
1: Yeah. What are two or three of the soft skills that you find are most important right now?
0: Uh, So one is for sure grit, right? This ability to have uh, an experience that challenges you and to work through it. And right now, what we're seeing on American campuses is that uh, this emergence of like safe spaces and people needing to be coddled and people having been taken care of by helicopter parents for so long that they don't know how to do anything themselves. And so this idea that I might go out and do four appointments and sell nothing, and I still need to get up and get on the phone and make my calls and set up those appointments, and it doesn't matter how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. What matters is that I get the job done and that I'm able to cover my bills and I can make some money and I can represent a product that I can respect the second is this whole idea of presenting which is both as the way i present myself in a way that's respectful for the job that i'm i have so dressing speaking appropriately communicating and that's whether that's at a presentation or at a team meeting because the skill of being able to present an idea a lesson a concept to a group of 40 of your peers it's you're never going to get it right your first time out. Like nobody is a speaker like Martin Luther King the first time they give a talk. And so you need an environment that's safe enough to let you try things out and see what works and to find your style and your ability to present in an effective way. And that's a pretty amazing thing. And then the third is uh, to really the importance of community. So even though you are an individual salesperson the fact that you have a cohort of people who are rooting for you who are sharing advice who are supporting one another and who are trying to succeed at this job is really important for a job that has very high highs and very low lows.
1: Yeah that that was really really awesome your point about grit. I want to come back to that because I heard many years ago like in studying my favorite speaker, author, personal development guru is Jim Rohn. There's a concept that he talked about, which was something along the lines of, you know, make what you do the product of your decisions, not the product of your feelings, Mm -hmm. right? That like we decide, well, I am going to get up at whatever time tomorrow, right? And when that time comes, we have a choice of either getting up or not getting up, right? Some people, I don't feel like getting up, so I'm not going to do it. Well, they immediately have thrown off kilter their entire plan or design for their day, right? And that people do that with their entire life by succumbing so often to how they feel versus acting based on decisions, acting based on values. And I do feel like we have an opportunity to practice that, you know, as reps with Cutco, as you said, because you have times where you'll fail and don't feel like doing something next, but you realize like, hey, I have goals. Mm-hmm. I want to achieve my goals. I'm deciding to achieve my goals. I'm I'm not going to decide to fail. I'm going to decide to succeed by following through here.
0: You see, the interesting thing is uh, there's this very well-known behavioral economist by the name of Dan Ariely. He's one of the big geniuses in the behavioral economics realm. And we were at a conference and he was speaking and somebody said, do you think we could be better at making decisions? And he goes, absolutely, just not at the time of the decision, which is... <laughs> If you're trying to convince yourself at six o'clock in the morning to wake up, you're already have half lost the battle. But if you're really serious about waking up at 6am, then you set things up ahead of time to ensure that you can't rely on your emotions. So your emotions don't matter at that point. You're getting up. So if you set an alarm in one room and then another alarm right by the doorway to your room and a phone call or whatever it is, there's no way that that much nagging at you will keep, will let you sleep through it. Right. And so when it comes to these things like getting on the phone or uh, to make the calls, these habits require actual design around the fact that we behave a certain way. And so we, it's important that we hedge around the fact that our emotions might want to pull us one way, but our commitments pull us another. Mm. And frankly, like in all honesty, Left to my own devices, I'd rather eat cheesecake and play video games, but that's not what my life is committed to. And so the way I prevent that is there's no dessert allowed in my house (laughs) and video games are for whatever I can play weekends. I don't really have a problem with controlling that just because I find my work so interesting these days, but you have to design it when your willpower and when your focus and when your commitment is in place. So that way, when you know it will falter, because it will at some point, there's, you know, we all have a limit that it's not an option for you to indulge in not doing it.
1: So insightful. That was, that was great. So you graduated from NYU. Tell us about uh, your path in the years following college.
0: Sure. So I was that incredible student that got all A's, never missed a class and did well in Cutco. I'm kidding. That was not me at all. <laughs> at, at all. I barely showed up to class. I was working uh, when I did the All American. I was actually working. It was, I think, like a fall season or something like that. And I'm not like, I'm dyslexic. I don't do well sitting in long classes. It's not the way I learn. NYU was fascinating and a great education and really something nice to do between weekends was my general feeling about it. Like I learned a lot, but like, frankly, it, it was not the way that I did. And so uh, I was probably what you'd call an underachiever when it comes to my uh, academic career there. Although I valued it very much and I studied a whole lot of stuff. I studied computer science, math and economics. So I literally majored in not dating. Like I, <laughs> I was the geek of the geeks, right? And uh, after I sold for two summers and then my third summer, I ran a branch in Brooklyn. I think we did about a hundred K or so. And, uh, after that, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to transition. I wanted to go into education and I went into education for a bit. And then I realized that I had a real knack for behavioral science. Mm-hmm. So I'd read, listen, I'd read all the personal development books and I'd done all the seminars and all that. And there's great wisdom out there. The, brilliant minds. Uh, and the problem that I faced was that like, I was 28. And I had a lot of ideas of what I wanted to do with my life. But I was like this typical underachiever, and not living up to my potential, whatever <laughs> that is. And I sat in this seminar by landmark education called wisdom. And the program leader said something that blew my mind, because I'd never thought about it. They said, the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And I thought that was fascinating because it meant maybe I'd gone about this all the wrong way. Maybe instead of trying to focus on my faults and all the things that I'm doing wrong that I keep telling myself or <laughs> the girls I dated uh, were telling me that I need to fix, maybe instead of me trying to fix it and going through like all this really hard work and making it a struggle and difficult and a challenge, maybe I just need to Hang out with the people who've mastered it and it would naturally just affect me. Hmm. Right? Because if you're surrounded with a bunch of Olympians, you're probably going to have like a pretty decent fitness program that you participate in. Because people say, instead of going to eat cheesecake, they'll say things like, hey, do you want to go for a run? And so you naturally take on their characteristics. So I was curious if this was true. And I found this uh, incredible book by these two guys, Nicholas Krustakis and James Fowler. They had done an, a study on obesity. Uh, they found all this data over the course of 32 years, and they were curious, is obesity the type of epidemic that spreads from person to person, right? Like, you have a cold, you sneeze, you give it to someone else, or is it a percentage of the population? Meaning, let's say you know somebody who has Alzheimer's, you don't get Alzheimer's by shaking their hand, right? It doesn't right. pass that way. And what they found was absolutely startling that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%, your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends who don't know anybody in this scenario really have a 5% increased chance. And that's wild that we could have an effect that many degrees out. But it's also true for like happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking, voting. so everything passes through this superhuman network of ours. And so I said... I need to figure out how to bring together the most influential people in every field. Because if I want to live an extraordinary life, the most important thing I can do, the thing that's most in my control is curating the people around me. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is figure out what will cause these people to connect with me. And then the other factor is I need to figure out how to build trust with them quickly. And so if I can figure those two things out, I could really be onto something.
1: How to connect with the top achievers in a variety of walks of life, variety of fields. Yeah. And then how to build trust and credibility uh, with those individuals.
0: Precisely. Because here's the interesting thing. Ultimately, we're talking about influence. Influence, and I don't mean like Instagram influencer, I mean like actual influence, right? Not that those people don't have influence, but I mean the concept of influence rather than Right. Posting something on a social media site. So influence breaks down into these two factors, which is who knows who you are and how much they trust you in that capacity. Meaning when it comes to sales and sales training, no doubt you know what you're talking about. When it comes to neurosurgery, I'm probably not calling you first. Right. So that means that I needed to figure out what would cause a top performer in an industry to actually notice me as this 28-year-old nobody, right? Listen, I was great at the work I did and all that jazz, and I'm a nice enough guy, but that doesn't matter. There's plenty of super high performers that nobody notices or talks to or cares about. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how do you actually get to know these people? And then, you know, it doesn't take much to get a selfie with a celebrity. What would actually have them trust you in a significant way? And I figure that both of those questions aren't unique, right? It's not something that we haven't solved at some point in history. It's not like we're talking quantum mechanics or, you know, space flight or any of these kind of crazy concepts. Human beings have been around for at least as far as, you know, our measured history, like 40,000 years in the current way that we've been around. Uh, Somebody's figured this stuff out, right? So now the question is, can I use whatever knowledge is out there to solve the problem? And so I started studying it. And what I found led to kind of this crazy outcome. Yeah. So
1: the outcome is the hatching of this influencers dinner concept, right? And uh, I'd love to hear more about how this started and uh, just kind of get your, your take on that.
0: So I spent about a year trying to figure out what would cause influential people to engage and connect. And I found that there's Essentially, four basic characteristics that really appeal to this audience, right? So this is an audience of people whose lives are incredibly busy. Everybody wants something from them. They want their, uh, I say they, they want their steam. They want their social clout. Because being friends with them gives you status. They want their time, their expertise, their access, and their money, right? Everybody's after these things. Not necessarily their personal money, but like if you're the CMO of a major company Everybody wants donations, contracts, all that kind of stuff. So what do we do with that? If everybody's after something, then we need to give them something without any expectation of anything in return because it then their defenses go down. Mm-hmm. But I don't mean like product. I don't want a new phone or a car or something like that because we actually tend not to value the things that we're given, right? If you go to a, an event and there's a gift bag, what do most people do with what's inside the gift bag? <laughs> yeah, might not even keep any of it, right? Yeah, it goes into the trash or gets
1: re-gifted. Re-gifted,
0: yeah. yeah. Nobody really cares. We care about what we work for. And I'll get to that in a bit. The second characteristic is the most influential people in our culture have experienced so much. So if we want to get on their radar, it can't be the same thing as everything else. We, we have to trigger a section of the brain called the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center of the brain. And it turns out that when you trigger novelty, it induces us to explore and understand things. So the more novel something is, the more of a desire to understand it exists. Mm-hmm. And so if you invite somebody to a casino-themed fundraiser that's really influential, they'll be like, I've been invited to 100 of those this year. <laughs> no, thank you. But if you invite them to something that really stands out as different, then they get curious. Right. Especially because they're used to being, they see themselves often as the person who gets access to the most exclusive things. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, who do the most influential people in our culture spend their time with?
1: Who do you think? Other very influential people or
0: their family. Right. Right? That's what people think. And the truth is that they don't get to spend time with other influential people. Mm -hmm. They spend time with their admins. So if you actually look at where people are spending their time, it's their direct reports, sometimes the person they report to, and it's their assistant, admin, all that kind of stuff. Then their family. And if they're lucky, one night a week or something like that, they'll go out to an event with fancy people. But mostly they don't get to be with uh, interesting or really unique people. When you're at the top, that experience isn't openly available. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to go. That's why people spend so much to go to TED or Davos or any of these big events. Mm-hmm. And then, lastly, the uh, arguably the most desired human emotion or experience is a state of awe or wonder. So, if you can induce that, what's interesting about it is that people feel more generous and more connected. It's mm-hmm. a so these are kind of four things that if you make them available, people will want to connect with you. Right so I said okay I'm going to create a secret dining experience and I'll invite 12 people at a time they're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name they cook dinner together and when they sit down to eat everybody gets to guess what everybody else does hmm. they find out that it's Malcolm Gladwell the president of MTV the editor in chief of L a two time olympian a, you know all these kind of really successful, super interesting people, company founders and comedians and celebrities or whatever it is. And I've hosted at this point, 197 dinners in nine cities and three countries. It's been over 1600 people, I think. Wow. And it's grown into one of the most exclusive private communities out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like the the stuff that... uh conspiracy theorists get all excited about because we're pretty like it's a pretty open thing nobody's thinking wow we are picking who the next president is or anything but (laughs) i've been watching the family I, i don't know if you saw this on netflix about this ultra christian organization that's kind of got their hands into all these political groups but yeah, it's, it's just like, uh, it's essentially a dinner party. Uh, and then to keep the group connected, I created a uh, salon series. So, uh, we invite about 60 former dinner guests plus a few, uh, friends that I've made along the way. And we have them have cocktails and then we get three of our members to speak. So you might hear a talk by Bill Nye, the science guy, or one of the former roots perform or stuff like that. So it's, it's like, uh, A true salon in a living room and the people there are just extraordinary yeah yeah Um, cool really i owe my life to it in the sense that i have an amazing life and it's because people keep making me burritos in these dinners (laughs) (laughs) and i you know i'm i consider myself pretty fit because i get to work out with all these amazing athletes and you know if i need advice on how to make a tv show i call you know, when the senior people at Netflix or Amazon or like, you know, it's, it's just kind of absurd uh, when you can get the answers from the people who are defining the industry.
1: Mm, that's so, so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So when you began, you just began with, you know, 12 people who you've had some sort
0: of access to and just kind of yeah. up, up-leveled it from there? So yeah, I think that that's what uh, people often have this question of like, how'd you pull this off? I've been doing a almost 200 of them. Like in the early days, I was some schmuck in my like apartment with a broken air conditioner that couldn't keep the kitchen cold enough. And people were sweating while they were cooking, right? Like it was miserable. And like, it's kind of funny to look back to that being the first dinner and, and it was wonderful and miserable. And, you know, it was a few impressive people. And, and it wasn't until like dinner five that I realized, Oh, I should, you know, pre-group the food into stations and it wasn't until you know we tried making sushi one time at one of the dinners and my entire apartment was covered in rice everywhere like you learn all these lessons along the way and you screw up a ton and you embarrass yourself and sometimes people drink too much and say something stupid and so you know like all these things happen and then you kind of figure it out And by dinner 10 you're like oh my god i just got an email from the new york times or didn't they want to cover it so we were featured on the cover of the style section and forbes featured us and at this point, there's been covered by everybody from Fast Company and GQ to L to Vogue to whatever, right? So it's, it's really kind of become this crazy cultural phenomenon. And I've eaten a lot of burritos.
1: <laughs> it, it's so fascinating, John, because without knowing you and without knowing this concept that, you know, in the way that you presented it, I went to a friend of mine a little over three years ago and said, hey, let's get together the 12 most successful people we've ever met in our life Mm -hmm. and let's just put them in a room and have a conversation and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, And and I've now had 13 events, so it's far less than 197, but (laughs) I've seen the way that it opens doors to Mm -hmm. greater access to more and more amazing individuals. And I've had some of the most incredible leaders in the Silicon Valley in the room with me. Mm-hmm. And and just like you said, I almost feel like it's absurd that like I'm the knife guy and I've got access yeah. to all of these incredible people that I could call or talk to or ask questions of or leverage for connections uh, uh, that I might want some other way. And it, it all just came from deciding to give value to the group without expecting anything in return.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: that's always been the motivation, at least for my group from the start, is just giving value without expecting anything in return, being able to be in the room, hear the conversation, learn and grow and make connections.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with Shauna Winslow, who started uh, two communities, one uh, was called the Creators Salon, which was for like top notch kind of A-level Hollywood writers and directors to be able to speak privately to each other without worrying what the studios would say and all that. And she also started an organization called good egg where she would cook dinner for 12 people. And it was 12 good, like a dozen good eggs, like people that she would vouch for. And she said, fundamentally at the core of this is you have to curate around people who are willing to be generous Mm -hmm. because unless, as she said, in her opinion, community is really tough to create if people aren't going to put themselves out there and uh and what's clear is you might be the knife guy but you're also the generous guy. Mhm. And so the fact that you're willing to do this with no clear benefits to you with no clear transaction value is why it works. Right? It might be less successful if it was purely opportunistic. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't speak to that because it's not the environments I plan. Like I don't know how it works because It's not like I've made money off of the dinners. I've made money because I've met people who've come to the dinners who said, I want to hire you, but that's not why they were at the dinner. In fact, the times I get hired are often the least expected of all the guests that I invite. And so it's, uh, what we really focus on is diversity of attendees. Mm -hmm. And when I say diversity, I'm not just talking ethnic or gender, but also industry. Yes. Super cool that you're doing that. I encourage you to do it more often.
2: Yeah.
1: It's gotten to the point now where it, it's the group is too big for us to do one, you know, 12 or 14 person mm-hmm. dinner every few months and so we're we're about to talk about how we're going to be able do to do the reunion type stuff, get it going forward and do stuff like you yeah
0: like the salon idea where you bring everybody together. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You need great. a structure uh once you reach a critical mass to allow people to feel connected. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's cool. Awesome. Has there been a, like a memorable event that stands out in the, oh my in the years of doing this? Like, uh, so the answer is
0: yes, but the best ones are, have to be kept off the record is the truth. But we have these kind of moments that are completely unpredictable. So I remember once we were all trying to guess what this one woman did and it came time for the person and we go in a circle and the person right next to her says, you're a lifesaver. And I'm like, this is about to get super awkward. I do not know how I'm going to handle this. And I was like, who said something like that? And she goes, when I was 16 years old, I had cancer. I was literally dying. And I went unconscious and I saw myself going towards the light. And as I did, I heard your music and it pulled me back.
2: Mm, wow.
0: Uh, and you saved my life. And the woman was a executive at, at the Soho House Company. Now I think she's at Sotheby's. And the woman that she was guessing was Laurie Anderson, the famed musician. Oh. And it was one of these moments that you could have never predicted that somebody in the room would have such a deep impact on somebody else. And... So that was like, you could have literally heard a pin drop. And we've had a few of those. We had uh, a famous DJ there once. And after the dinner, she walked up to this woman who, uh, absolutely incredible woman, uh, and said, At, when I was 16, I saw you on Oprah and I gave all of my money I had to your nonprofit because I believe in it. And I've given more every year, year after year. You are my hero. And I'm so happy I get to meet you. Oh my god. The woman who started Women for Women International, Zanab Salbi, who's actually Saddam Hussein's niece, but she was kind of lived in a under terror in the royal palace because he was a madman who, you know, terrorized everybody. And she started this organization, helped women internationally. And uh the DJ by the name of Pastor Prane, who quite popular. And so it's a lot of that kind of stuff where a uh, neuroscientist says, oh, I chose my career based on an email that you sent me. And the person who sent it to him was Nobel laureate, Dan Kahneman who wrote thinking fast, thinking slow right. and, yeah. and changed economics. So we, that's the kind of stuff that's like completely unexpected, or you'll get people like at the salon performances and people s- chiming in and singing. And you realize that this is like a super famous star from the DC universe. That's uh, in a major Hollywood film. Like stuff that you don't predict that side of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So cool. So cool. And I think uh, everybody listening could have their wheels turning on how could I do something like this in my community? How could I bring together some of the more influential top achievers in my community, top thinkers in my community, and uh, be able to glean insight from being around those people and around those conversations?
0: So I can actually give you some really, I think, solid advice around this stuff. And I'm, you know, advice is one of these funny things because it works for some people and it doesn't for others. And frankly, nobody ever does it anyway, but I'll give it to you. And the first thing is don't copy anybody else's format. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that your format works for you. My format works for me. If I try to copy it, then I'm like a copycat and people hear about it. They'll be like, oh, that person's just doing a crappier version of something that already exists. What you want to do is take something that you care about and that you enjoy, that you'll be willing to do more than three times. Because if it was, for example, skydiving, I'm not into skydiving. I'm not going to be willing to do that more than three times. So I was talking to somebody who wanted to get into entertainment. And I said, what do you enjoy? And he's like, donuts. And I was like, that was really fast. <laughs> okay, I get it. You like donuts. What else do you like? Uh, and he goes, running. I said, here's an idea for you. It's really simple. It's called the Donut Run Club. Once a week, you meet at a donut shop, you run in a circle, like a couple miles, and you meet back at the donut shop. And then people have coffee and donuts and hang out and talk, but it's for the entertainment industry. So you invite all of your friends who are grips, who are whatever, right? All these people, and you have a run club and people who don't want to run can just join for the donuts after. And you make it a thing so that every week it happens. Hmm. Week in, week out. You, if that's too often, great. You do it once a month and then you increase frequency. But what happens is then you develop status within the community. You develop a mailing list. You develop uh, a reputation of being able to bring people together. Then companies become interested in, oh, how can we sponsor it? Or, then what happens is you start researching all the celebrities and all the people in the entertainment industry who are big runners. And there are all these articles in like runner's world and stuff like that about people doing marathons or fitness and you invite them and it's low risk to them because people aren't going to be really harassing them while they're running. Then they can choose to join for the donut part or not, but it's a really simple idea. If you like hiking, great start your own hike club. If you like, uh, what is it? Board games. Do a board games night where each week you do a different board game or each month. But the key is to just start bringing people together. And then over time, and this is why consistency is important. Why grit is important is that the first one you do might be a total failure, but you're going to learn. And then you make the next one even better and the next one even better. And by the time you hit five or six, you're really onto something. And by the time you hit 50, you're probably in some newspaper. Yeah. Like it's, It's not, and 50, I mean, like I was nowhere near 50 when when the New York Times covered us. So the key is you want to create something. And as you do, if it's something that you're going to want attention for, make sure you invite some media people who like to run. Because at some point you're going to want to tell the story and they'll be able to help you out with that. So you can create whatever it is that you're passionate about. Now, if it's something that requires less industry expertise, it helps pull people from different industries right so if it's a hackathon you're clearly not going to get like a lot of maybe i don't know artists musicians and stuff like that but if your objective is to do artists something with artists and musicians then you could create a jam night or i know this guy and please don't copy his idea he would have a night where each person brought their favorite record and they would listen to the records throughout the night and talk about them so that's an incredible thing for the record industry, right? Mm-hmm. You get people, oh my God, when I uh, I was listening to this song, when I found out I got into college and it meant the world to me. Oh, you know, this is the song that uh, played at my father's funeral. And like, it makes me feel closer to him or whatever it is. But you get these really intimate stories. So think about what it is that you do that's really, that you really care about, that you could do time after time. Something that's people would, find interesting and it's okay that it requires effort there's this characteristic for human beings called the ikea effect which states that we care about our ikea furniture more because we had to assemble it <laughs> so anything we put effort into we care about disproportionately you just don't want it to be so effortful that you feel like you've just gotten into the navy seals after <laughs> this week long you know struggle it needs to be just enough effort that they feel invested but not so much that it Cuts out everybody.
1: Yeah, cool. That was great.
0: So was I, great. I hope that provides some value uh, and some insights to your listeners. Yeah,
1: definitely, definitely. Before we uh, we cut out, I just want to quickly ask about your book. It's such a fascinating concept. Uh, what can you share with us? Uh, the two AM principle. I wanted to figure out how to get paid to travel,
0: so I wrote a book about the science of adventure. Where I literally break down the science of living a fun, exciting, and remarkable life. So it's a combination of Completely insane stories from uh, getting into a battle of drunken Jenga with Kiefer Sutherland and getting invited to his family Thanksgiving all the way through to within, I don't know, probably 10 seconds of meeting the woman behind the duty free counter at Stockholm Arlanda Airport. She quits her job and travels with me to another country. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but I break down the science of how and why it works so that it's reproducible. Because the problem is that most advice we get is not really that useful for us because certain people lived in in different time periods where the culture was different where the advice would have worked but for us right now the stuff that works we need it to be like time tested and based on actual human behavior the way that things actually work because frankly i don't know anything about like the economy or how to invest or any of those things but what i do know is that human beings tend to act pretty consistently when you put them in specific scenarios. And so we can really take that and then extrapolate, okay, if I do these things, it'll probably work.
1: Fascinating. Awesome. Well, John, as you look into the future, how do you aspire to change people's lives through your work or through your influence?
0: What I really care about are a few things. One is me and my wife, uh, donate every year to uh, look at, at judicial reform and the, how we can kind of, Solve a lot of these problems in the prison industrial complex. So we're heavily involved around that. In addition to running the dinners in the salons, we run a group just for uh, women of influence to help them support the next generation of leaders. And we also have an LGBT plus get together that happens every month where we get prominent leaders in the community. They'll do a workout and then they uh, talk about issues. Now, like I'm a straight guy who's married to a woman, but I felt that I need to support those communities that have been marginalized the most. And so we are also about to launch a group for people of color Uh, because if I don't do it, I don't know who will. (laughs) Right. Right. It's uh, I look white, but I'm not a mixed race. And I felt that uh, especially in this country, the advantages that have been served to me because I'm a white looking male, then I have to, I should have an obligation to do what I can for those who are being treated not as well. Yeah. When you reach the heights, throw a rope down, right. Help Uh, help pull others up. Equalize. Right. So I know stretch of the imagination at the top, but I am fortunate enough to have really extraordinary friends who can have a lot of influence.
1: Yeah, that's powerful. uh, Great, John. Well, thank you so much for your time Mm -hmm. and your impact today. I really appreciate it. Uh, This has been great.
0: No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh keep uh, selling knives and changing lives.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll do. Take care.
0: Bye.
1: Well, I trust that you found that fascinating. John Levy loved the uh lessons from his Cutco experience, grit being one of the keys, presenting skills being another key. Um the importance of community as well and of course uh the great insight he gained from a class with landmark which was the fundamental element that determines the quality of our life is the people that we surround ourselves and the conversations that we have with them and i hope that really leads you into thinking about being deliberate in building your network I have a resource to share with you. It's free. You go to the changinglivespodcast.com site, click on home, which will take you to my homepage. And right on the homepage, you can sign up to get a free PDF in which I offer up 10 keys to creating powerful personal connections. It's about a 16 or so page workbook that you can Use that will help you with your day to day interactions and being able to widen your network up level your network gradually but steadily over time. I love where John said everything passes through this superhuman network of ours, and the idea that uh, you know you know somebody who exhibits a certain trait, you are more likely to exhibit that same trait, and that that even passes down to the next level of relationships and to the next level beyond that uh so powerful so insightful hope you guys got some great information here from mr john levy he's got a site under construction at john levy t l b dot com john is j o n levy is l e v y t l b He's got a site under construction there. You can Google him. There's a TED Talk that he's given that's pretty cool. His book is The 2AM Principle. So check him out. Thanks very much for listening. Have an awesome rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.